What I'd like to do this evening is <clears throat> continue where it, was, where it was left off a few evenings ago. A few things, some loose ends, a few things left over that didn't get mentioned. Uh, and to go into some other points with a bit more depth. Much of it will be familiar in that Michael has covered a lot of it last evening. And we'll just, again, be building on that. Um, linking self-knowledge, self-knowing with living, if you recall. And self-knowledge one kind of self-knowledge is quite familiar to us, and that is more psychological, where we begin to notice things about ourselves. Very familiar. Some of it's new, but it's about uh, likes and dislikes and tendencies and avoidances, fears, and so forth. Not unrelated to our Vipassana practice at all. Some of which, a lot of which you would learn in any good therapy, or just by living, if you're observant and pay attention. Another kind, another kind of self-knowledge has to do with seeing in yourself dharma principles at work. Dukkha, impermanence, not-self, the law of cause and effect, attachment is, leads to suffering, etc. Whatever teachings you may have learned from books and tapes and from people, beginning to see it um, manifest in your own person. That's the whole point. You know, many people before the Buddha obviously recognized the impermanence of life. Uh, in the West, there's some extraordinary uh, poetry and philosophy that acknowledges it. Uh, there are differences, but one of the things that I think the Buddha did that uh, makes a huge difference is that he didn't limit it to the end of civilizations or mountain ranges crumbling or whole planets dissolving or uh, externals or even when we come closer to people that we all age, we all grow ill and die. But actually he made it a practice to observe this law in yourself. To my knowledge, it hadn't been done in such a meticulous way, to actually observe this law, if it's true, of anicca, impermanence, to see it at work, right, right in, in this one, right here. You see that, if, you, if you're willing to look, you'll see that everything arises, passes away. And what's interesting is that uh, I think everything that we're doing presupposes just living that there's an intelligence at work in the universe. Whether you, if you want to call it God, uh, as you know, all kinds of um, uh, characterizations are applied to that intelligence, but I think it would be difficult to escape the fact that there seems to be an intel intelligence at work. Not only that, and this is to me really interesting, although it's maybe obvious, it is. We also, however it came to be, have the intelligence to figure out this lawfulness. Otherwise, how, how could science exist? 
There is an intelligence in the universe, and we're part of it. We can deliver that wisdom. Dharma, one meaning of, of dharma is uh, the, the truth, kind of the nature of, uh, of truth, a natural law, natural truth. And so we're equipped, in a sense, if we pay attention to decode that intelligence which is at work and even deliver it. But it seems like mostly what we've done is applied ourselves to the external world. Obviously, internally to some degree. Some cultures much more. India has gone very deep inside. Uh, And in doing so, we have a magnificent science and technology, but in certain ways have not really begun to understand the lawfulness that is most immediate, which is us, how, how, how we work, how the mind works. Not uh, how rats live, and not abstract models, but intimately, directly. So that's another kind of self-knowledge. Uh, and then, even deeper on retreats, it's possible uh, for the mind to just empty itself of, of all of this, and come to a very deep place inside, not just in sitting. Sitting may, certainly at first, be the easiest way to do it, because it's so set up, so simplified. Um, Emphasizing learning as we do, that is, in a way, uh, Dharma practice is a a massive program of self-re-education. If you take it on, you're taking a a look, as if for the first time, uh, at yourself and how you actually live, not just on the cushion. And what comes out of that is perhaps a clear seeing of what has to be unlearned, what needs to be developed. Uh, and it's a, a re-education. Sometimes the word training is used. Some of it is training. But I feel the word training is a little limited. That's sometimes a bit like drill, Learning's something else. It's more artful, uh, and it grows out of our willingness to use our sensitivity, our attention, and to learn from what we see and hear. Um, Let me give an example that I didn't get to, which we've been uh, pointing to every evening, the late-night sitting, so-called optional late-night sitting. And you know what we say. If you have energy, stay and do it. If you're, asleep, if you're sleepy, go to sleep. And what's also emphasized is that sometimes wisdom can be going to sleep and sometimes wisdom can be staying up. So what is being suggested is you learn how to come to know yourself. This isn't the most complicated thing to find out, but in principle... It stands for something that is meant throughout our practice. That is, 9.15 rolls around. You have something hot to drink. And then to look into yourself, to invite the body to, to tell you what condition it's in, the mind as well. And as we know, we humans have a great capacity for self-deception. Uh, and so very often, it of course, we'll say, go to sleep, most of the time. And it might even sound wise as you say it. But here's what I'm getting at. 
even if you're deceiving yourself, little by little, if you stay with it, and not limit it just to the late night sitting, of course, you come to learn how to read yourself, just like you can read a book. Only you're the book, and it's a, perhaps the most important book. Scratch out, perhaps. Uh, and you make mistakes. Sometimes you go upstairs and you find, oh, I really do have lots of energy. Ah, it's, so what? I'll go to sleep. <laughs> okay. Um, we learn from mistakes. It takes a mature person to be able to acknowledge mistakes. Wisdom grows out of foolishness. Three cheers for foolishness. That's how we learn, by making mistakes, but we have to be willing to recognize them and to do something about it. And so it's a style of practice where we put an emphasis on sensitivity and a willingness to learn. The reason I bring it up is that it's not the only style of practice. And it's not even a dominant one, in my opinion. Having practiced in a a variety of different situations and schools in Buddhism and and not Buddhism, uh, I would say the main one is more akin to what we think of as discipline, which is, look, just stay up, for God's sakes. Have Have your hot drink and get back into that hall. It's more militaristic. And it's pushing, and it might use all kinds of inducements like enlightenment and uh, there's only one day left on the retreat, so come on, get at it, for God's sakes. And, in my opinion, it's much more realistic, much, and in the short run, produces more impressive results because our natural bent is to not, is to just go up and go to sleep. So it's realistic. It's saying, look, we know what they're going to do if we give them freedom. They're just going to sack out. Okay. (laughs) So, suppose we said, everyone just get up whenever you feel like it and just come into the hall and sit. We know it's going to happen. Okay. I know some of you are living that way anyway, but that's all right. (laughs) We know all about it, you know. Um, So, in the short run, that's much more impressive because uh, it plays upon our obvious uh, tendency to want to be comfortable and to make life a little easier for ourselves. But I feel in the, in the long run, developing sensitivity and the willingness to learn from discernment, from, from paying attention, and from guiding ourselves, uh, I, I value it much more, even though probably fewer people will do it effectively. I have no question about that. To me, it's still worth it, because it's more like that has marathon power. The other one, as you get older, you get fed up with just being marched around. Don't you? I mean, I did. Do this, do that, get up. You know. um, okay, so that just understand that learning is a, an integral part of this approach. Um, what I'd like to do, I don't know how much time I'll have to cover a few things here, but one thing I want to make sure that I cover, so I'm going to take it first is when we practice, we've been talking about practice on a retreat, that there's a daily life on a retreat. And uh, we haven't talked about sitting because we're talking about that a lot, and it's implied. We're doing so much of it. There are discussion groups and so forth. I'd like to go into more detail about the sitting practice and link it with the daily life piece, not only here but when we go home. 
I'm going to read that quote from the Bhaya Sutra. So, trying to give me a moment. I, want to, I don't want to read the whole thing, just the relevant portion. Uh, the part I, what I'm interested in, if you can, I'm going to read the sutra, is that if your mind can, uh, can regard your experience as simply being what it is, without adding anything to it, uh, that if you if you can do that, then um, you're not defined by the experience. I try to say that in a slightly different way this morning. It's just what it is. Okay, here's the. See if you can hear that with hear what I just the, the sutra with that in mind. Then, Bhaiya, you should train yourself thus: in reference to the scene, there will be only the scene; in reference to the herd, only the herd; in reference to the sensed. Only the sensed, in reference to the cognized thinking, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, and skip some. This, just this, is the end of stress, of dukkha, of suffering. Which you're not defining yourself by your experience. You're not making self out of it. Um, what it also gets at is that that place where the mind makes contact with sensory objects, and remember in the Buddhist teaching, the mind is a sixth sense. That's the place of practice. Where sounds come in, sights come in, smells, etc. Thoughts happen. The mind makes contact with that, whether it's somebody looking at you the wrong way or saying the wrong thing, and then something happens, or somebody saying the right thing. You know, how wonderful and brilliant and handsome and beautiful and kind you are, and then something happens there. Uh, And sounds come in, sights come in, some we like, some we don't, smells we like, tastes we don't. So that place where the mind makes contact with sense objects, that's the place of practice. And that can happen anywhere. It's not limited to here. But for the moment, let's stay with the sitting practice. Everything is just what it is. But then when the mind comes into it and uh, adds onto it, does regard it uh, as being me or mine, then everything is changed. Let me give you an example that may, it's a little bit far-fetched, but maybe it'll get it across. Many years ago, uh, uh, my first Vipassana teacher, for many of us here, was Anagarika Munindra, Munindraji, from India, came here and spent a lot of time at IMS and in Cambridge, and I had the good fortune of being his host for a while. And the interesting opportunity to, to go with him to his first film, he had never seen a real Hollywood film, a real film, full-length film. So I've forgotten what the movie was, but we went in. We sat for an hour and a half or so. We came out, and he was really disappointed. And he just said, what's all the fuss? You know, why why do people get all excited? I said, well, what was it like for you, Manindraji? He said, well, I just saw, you know, a screen like that, and images flashing on it, light coming like that, different people sitting in their chairs, you know. (laughs) Uh, 
And uh, I, I just don't see why everyone, you know, he saw Westerners were always running to the films. And, and I, I don't see what it is. I mean, it's nothing, really. And he described it literally what it was. He didn't add anything to it. Okay. Fine. About a month later, we went to another movie. It had something to do with bridge over, uh, it was a war film, World War II over Remagen Bridge, and uh, it was a, a, kind of an epic. It was more than two hours, and we're sitting there, and um, people are getting shot and bombed, the machine gun dying, falling off the bridge, screaming, agony, you know. And we walk out of the film, and Menindra's very downcast. I say, Menindraji, what's, what's, what's the matter? He says, oh, those poor people. And I said, anyways, he, he got sucked in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I said, no one died, you know. It's nothing. It's what you said the other day. He said, but in order, to, in order for the film to be effective, you have to enter into delusion. That's what it is. It's an illusion-making machine. And if you accept it and go into it, you make bridge over Ramagan, you know, whatever it is, and you suffer you know, the love affair, and then you start crying as, you know, people are separated and die and bombs going off, and then you're happy because they're reunited, and, you know, nothing's happened. Okay, do you see what I'm getting at? Okay, so in a sense, the mind is making up movies all day long about what's happening to us. It's not just in our dreams. Okay, let's now slip back to the practice. You know the instructions are, we have, in a sense, two practices, they're not hermetically sealed off from each other. There's overlap. When you're doing, let's say, a samadhi practice, we call it shamatha at the beginning, let's say, where we, here we've been using the breathing, exclusive attention to an object. It needn't be the breath, but that's what we've been doing. You come back to the breath again and again and again. And then if you recall, the second mode of practice is free attention, choiceless awareness. What this is really getting at, that is, Whatever arises, you, you see it for what it is. A thought is just a thought. Chirp, chirp is just chirp, chirp. Uh, as the mind gets quieter, at first the chirp, chirp may seem out there, somewhere in the woods. But when the mind gets quiet, it feels like the bird is chirping in your own heart. I'm not being merely poetic. There's no separation. And it's the same with any, let's say, uh, loneliness or fear. It's intimate. It's really intimate as you fall away and just permit everything to unfold. It's, there's no separation at all. Sometimes we use a technical term, non-dual. Okay. That's when practice starts cooking. Those of you who are new, some of this is, uh, you know, it, has, it matures at its own pace. You can't force it. Okay, so the first kind of practice, if you stay with the breath or whatever object you may prefer, in, out, in, out, and out, you become absorbed eventually. You can become deeply absorbed. And it leads to a kind of peace and all kinds of other nice things. It can be rapture at first. That can be, you get tired of it. Uh, you do. Uh, and then that leads to a kind of peace. You don't get tired of that. That's just wonderful. But it's still, uh, in, it's sometimes called the peace with uh, delusion or peace even with attachment. Well, why is that? This is the piece that comes from one-pointed attention to anything. Okay? Because as you become more and more absorbed, and that brings with it a lovely quality of peace. It's very healing. It's appreciated. It's nice. But it's also quite fragile. 
And in a certain sense, the reason it's a bit of a delusion is that it's premised on being separated from all those elements in consciousness that are intimidating, like most of our mind. There's no... Whatever you, whatever you think your problem is, what it worries, fears, loneliness, anger, apprehend... You, we all know what, we, what comes out of the mind. The whole point is, as you sink into the breathing, that temporarily it goes into abeyance. You separate from it and you go deeply into... You become absorbed. It's literally called an absorption. Okay. Is it worth doing? Is it worth helpful for the mind? Of course. Does the mind come out of it a little bit more fit, steady? Uh, definitely. Uh, it can have health value. Uh, strengthens the nervous system. Some of you will like this one. Psychic powers can come from it. That's more interesting than liberation, isn't it? <laughs> Look, if you could communicate with the dead on the other side, be on TV and all that, wouldn't you prefer that to what we're talking about? People would come up to you, can you talk to my Aunt Nellie? You, know, you would drop this liberation stuff in a second. Because people love that, and we love that people love that, especially if we can do it. Okay, so that's a human accomplishment, and it's no small one. It's valuable. There's another kind of peace, and that comes about through through choiceless awareness. I'll use that to communicate with you. There are other ways, uh, names we could use. And you have to understand what it is you're learning when you practice that. That is, here we're not avoiding those elements that are intimidating. We're not avoiding fear, loneliness, anger. That's the whole point. We're not looking for it, but if it turns up, we're learning how to receive it. In this sense, Vipassana is is widening our capacity to receive our own experience. The Buddha was sometimes referred to as someone who had mastered come what may seeing. You can just for the moment imagine if you had mastered that, come what may seeing. It doesn't matter what turns up, you remain steady. You're not pushed around by your own mind, by all the different states that come and visit us. Just there, unwavering. Okay. Uh, in order, to, you don't just get there by having a concentrated mind. Now we're learning how to, to come in touch with our fear, to practice with it, to begin to see that real liberation requires this, that actually something like fear or loneliness or anger, it's a jewel. There's a huge amount of energy that's held captive in these states that we're avoiding. It limits us. It drains us. Our lives are limited. They're distorted by that which we don't want to deal with. Just because we keep it below the surface doesn't mean it's not affecting us. Okay. And the art of self-observation is, uh, particularly the instructions are to do nothing. You have to understand the power of this doing nothing. That's an invitation for all those critters who are down there to start coming up. Oh, no agenda? Great. Yes, it's a party that everyone's invited to. <laughs> Terrific. I thought we're not allowed because we're mean and we're lonely and, you know, for, yet, no, everyone's invited to this one. Okay. Drunks, 
everyone. Okay, now, as you learn how to practice there, can you see the difference of the quality of peace that grows out of that? Where little by little you start to become at home with yourself as you are. Because otherwise, you're just very concentrated, and as long as you're in that concentrated state, you're separated from that which is intimidating, or whatever word you like. It's limited, and you come out of it. And then you suffer, because you want to stay there. And then perhaps start measuring life by, I can't wait to get back to that place. Because that's where I really feel happy. And all the rest of it, with all those, all that stuff. Uh, but that isn't the heart of our practice. The heart of our practice is, is learning how to receive uh, in an intimate way. Dogen Zenji, a great Japanese master, was asked, what is the nature of the awakened mind? It's the mind, his answer was the mind that it can be intimate with all things. And that includes nature, it includes objects, but of course, first and foremost, yourself. Intimate with ourselves means there's no resistance. Remember Michael was talking about resistance? Resistance is, uses up quite a bit of energy, struggle. We're defending ourselves. We'll let certain things in, not a lot of others. The practice here is to, it's unconditional surrender. And now, it doesn't happen overnight, but that's the spirit of choiceless awareness. The, choices of, the spirit of choiceless awareness is that you drop agendas. Now, who is the, agenda, the supreme agenda to someone running it? It's me. Me is the one. Now, it's still me who's doing choiceless awareness, granted. I have no agenda. It's still, you know, it's, now it's ego dressed up as someone much freer. But it's of course still, but the day comes where that falls, falls away. That's why, I've, I don't know if you recall, a couple of evenings ago, uh, we said that meditation, the meditator is meditation. You know, we have the illusion that I'm meditating on. Okay, but that starts to change, meditating on that's uh, the separation. And little by little you realize that uh, the meditator is just another name for the ego camouflaged as a yogi. And it's convenient. It's useful. It's another identity. It can take you so far. But at a certain point you realize it's still the same thing going on. It's, we've had other identities and other outfits and so forth. And now here's the latest one. But Meditation is, in a sense, the dissolving of all of that. For example, in that quote, let's say I'm paraphrasing a bit, in the thinking there's just what's thought, in the hearing there's just what's what's heard, etc. In some schools of Zen, Kensho is what's emphasized. And that uh, means seeing into your true nature, seeing your Buddha nature, perceiving your Buddha nature. And on retreats, uh, when you do them, you really, uh, people tend at the beginning to form, I want to really perceive my true nature. It's if Buddha nature is something that you perceive. Until finally, Kensho is understanding that the perceiving is Buddha nature. Now this one is going to be, for the beginners, I apologize. But it's what this is saying. There's just seeing, there's just hearing, there's just thinking, there's no one doing it. 
Let me give you an example that maybe is more accessible with the breath. Uh, if you stay with just breath awareness, just simple breath awareness, what happens uh, eventually is there'll come a time when the sitting will be such that there's breathing is clearly happening, but you can't find a breather. And it's wonderful because a world without the breather, in my case, Larry, is a much better world. <laughs> because I'm the one who's the problem to myself. Obviously, there are external problems as well, but you see what I'm, what I'm getting at. As you start to experience that, uh, it's wonderful. You realize the joy of just breathing. Walking meditation, there can be no walker. You just get so into it. That walking is happening, but there's no separation. Sometimes people who jog report that. I don't know, is that getting into the zone or, I don't know, whatever, you know what I'm getting at. You disappear into the activity. It could be a yogi job or any job. But now let me draw an analogy. The, the two practices, one very, very concentrated on the breathing, Invaluable, precious, keep doing it. But it isn't the whole story if you want to practice this path because it is uh, temporarily separating from anything that might be bothering you. And that's why you're happy. It's great. The second part of the path is taking some of the strength that comes from that singular attention because you're really enabling the mind to be much more fit to do the second, which is to take a look at fear, to take a look at loneliness. If the mind, if attention is, is weak, you can't do it. If someone walks in off the street and says, okay, what is this Vipassana? Just pay attention to your loneliness. Okay, sure, you can't do it because it'll swallow you up. It's too powerful. The mind will just be, uh, get lost in what's happening. So in this sense, we're in training. We're helping the mind little by little to be fit. And it's not just with the breath. Everything that we do mindfully is starting to re-educate, re-equip the mind so that it is in a position that it's adequate to be able to look at states which have been very frightening or intimidating. But the liberation is, is there. It ha- this, now, you may not want to do that. Maybe you say... Sounds good, but it's not what I want. I just want to become more calm. Fine. But I have to tell you that that's not entirely what the Buddha had in mind. The calm is uh, an important, vital aspect, but that contributes. Okay, the second part, the kind of well-being that comes out of that, comes out of becoming familiar with yourself so that you don't have to be intimidated because you've gotten to know all those hooligans who live inside. And it turns out, they're not that bad. If you just invite them to this party and look, look them over and watch them, they, they do their hooligan thing, you know, eat up all the food, knock over hors d'oeuvres, you know. <laughs> and, but if you let them do it, then they kind of live out their life cycle. They flower and then they start to wither. And you start feeling a little bit more free. The analogy being, now, that challenge between those two Practice can be, 
where you define meditation as being just sitting, basically. That's the supreme part of the practice. Now, there's no question that sitting is extraordinary and it's a jewel. Please don't leave here thinking that we don't appreciate and respect it. If we did, why would we do what we're doing? And not only that, we don't just end here. We're doing it all the time. So, of course, we value it. But if you only limit the practice to sitting, it's like limiting the practice to just concentration. And so what we're saying is bring it into relationship. Bring it into work. Bring it into just the ordinary stuff that makes up a life, taking out the garbage, working in your garden, uh, saying hello to a neighbor, uh, whatever it is. And I understand that there are more challenges once you do that. Of course there are. But if you don't, then we create a life where we're constantly on the run to get to safe havens. Now, finding places like this, which it is a safe haven, it's an oasis, great. Come to it. Heal up. It's just like going to sleep. It's not a waste of time. You know, well, what are we doing? You don't get anything done while you're asleep. You do. You get rest. Okay, so something valuable happens here. And practice is then bringing that into your life as it is. And so we've emphasized, we started talking about it on the first day rather than the last day, so that practice is more of a life, so that living and practicing really, the two words disappear into each other. Um, From that point of view, so you don't get stuck in any particular form, because everyone's life is different. When you sit, let's say on a retreat, the logic of this way of doing things, when it comes time to come into the hall and to sit, just sit. Give your very best to it. Wholeheartedly enter into the sitting practice. When the sitting practice ends, let it go and wholeheartedly enter into the walking. When the walking ends, let it go, whatever is next. Your yogi job, enter into the yogi job. Lunch, enter into lunch. Exhale, inhale. Exhale, exhale what's over with. You don't need it anymore. It's gone. It's stale air. Making room for fresh, fresh breath. The next life situation. And it's a simple but very helpful model for living when you, when you go home. So that practice is, it's not in any particular posture or shape or form. Uh, it's obviously wherever you are, wherever there's a mind, and sense objects, and they come together, uh, that's the perfect place to practice, because those are the perfect materials to practice with, because they're you, what we think of as being you. Um, two minutes left. Relationship uh, as a liberating form, in other words, taking it on as a practice, when I say relationship, I don't mean to limit it to people. But of course, that's the main challenge for us. It's relationship to nature, to objects, and first and foremost to all living creatures, and to people. People is perhaps our biggest challenge. Okay. Now, if you take this on as a practice, and I strongly suggest you do, because life is relationship in movement. So much of life is made up of relationship. Even hermits are dealing with relationships in their head. 
past. You can't escape it. Life is with people. Okay, we're not hermits. We're with people. We have to learn how to do that. Um, relationships are difficult. They are maybe the most difficult to do. Maybe that's why we prefer to go to the moon, dive down into the ocean, anything, but you know, face our relationship. My God, the fear or the apprehension, bringing the same quality of interest and the willingness, because the willingness to learn from what happens, because what it does is you keep bumping into yourself. I don't think it's just me, but I've done lots of long-term sitting and tremendously helpful. I don't have words for it. But there were certain things that did not get learned on even the longest silent retreat. And coming in, having a connection with a person flushed it right out. And, I, and you, you bump into yourself. And it shows you selfing. It shows you me and mine, which is the core of where our problem is. The Buddha is saying the essence of, the, of Buddha Dharma is to not attach to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. When we talk about attachment, that's what's getting attached to what? It's me that, that is. The suffering is happening to me. We have images of ourselves. We enter into relationships. They can be shattered. People don't behave towards us the way we want them to. And then it brings up stuff in us that's unpleasant, painful, but true. That's why relationship is a mirror. If you're willing to take it on, let's at least with people who are intimate in your life, It's nice if both people are willing to do that. Because if you want to go beyond self, I don't know of a better way, personally. Because it keeps, uh, you keep bumping into yourself in a relationship. Let's say with friends, children, spouses, you tell me, bosses. A number of the contributions in the groups were all about my relationship to my boss, to, to my children, to my family. That's what our life is composed of, so much of it anyway. And if you see it a certain way, it's a, it's a different way of approaching it. What's radical is a new way to relate to relationship, to approach it. And what it does, it can reveal the ways of the self directly. As you enter into it, and I'm not speaking from Mount Olympus. This is something that I actually do in my life. So does Michael, and so do other people. It yields fruit. Is it easy? No. Would you, would you want to get away from it and just, oh, just let me breathe in and out, in and out, in and out? <laughs> Sometimes people think that this practice is about the breath. The breath has nothing to do with it. It's just a vehicle to take you to clear mind and then to be able to use that clarity to let go of suffering, unnecessary suffering. And so whether it's a yogi job or an interpersonal relationship, uh, or the Vipassana romances, or the ways in which we all affect each other, even in silence. Granted, very simplified here. Not, too, not all that challenging. Okay, so this person put too much food on their plate. You know, and you get a little annoyed at them. But it's not the end of the world. But we're going home now, right, in a little while? <laughs> hey, that's a little different. But it's the same principle. It's what Michael was emphasizing, the awareness to reactivity. And let, uh, let me finish up giving you a sense of what that might lead to.
You know the phrase, to make a long story short? Uh, I'm not good at that. (laughs) You, You may have gathered. I'm good at making a short story long. So this is going against a certain um, ethnic disability. (laughs) If you can uh, start to practice with with reactions, that is, and look for the moment, let's talk about relationship, it brings up something, a reaction. Reactions are mechanical. They're conditioned. Everything that Michael was talking about last night, we're very much living in a conditioned world. Liberation is from that. It's not that we have to kill the conditioning, it's that to be free of it. Okay, that, okay. So something comes up, uh, it's, a, it's automatic. Now, we don't see it as mechanical and automatic. It comes from our past, it's yesterday. Okay. We take pride in it, we identify with it, we think it's spontaneous. We think it's me. I, no one does that to me. We think of it as pride. We're standing up for myself, etc. We have a nice romantic glorification of it. But when you look closely at it, you'll see it's happening and you have no control over it. Someone looks at you a certain way and you uh, either want to kiss them and hug them or punch them out. And it, there it is. Okay. As you start becoming more and more aware of your reactions, the reactions start losing their power. Literally, they start losing their power. I'm now talking about a a, a longer time span where maybe a lifetime of practice, but it's not that you have to wait till the nursing home to do this. (laughs) What I'm saying, it's an ongoing... It's not that if you want to just, well, when do I get my degree in this stuff? Uh, There is no degree. In other words, schools end, thank God. Certificates end, degrees end, but learning doesn't have to end. It goes on until death, at least it can, and that's what Dharma practice is, it's to stay awake. Not until a certain age, right to the end. Stay awake, okay. When you start tuning into your reactivity and it loses its power, coupled with retreats and sitting, and also using attention uh, to edit out behavior that's destructive. Remember, here it's easy. What's the worst thing you can do? Maybe there's something, this retreat didn't have it. It would say, cupcakes or you know, muffins, one a person, and you take two. <laughs> you know, that's like a serious crime on a retreat. Okay. Well, forgive that. When we get home, you know, the stakes go up. It's very different. <laughs> okay. As you become aware of the reactivity, as it starts to become weaker, and as the practice becomes more and more a way of life, what you may find is your ability, you can, in other words, it's a training, and it's a form of educating yourself. You see, right now we're mainly interested in what produced the reaction. Someone says something or does something, a child, a boss, or this or that. Uh, we're externally preoccupied. The reaction is at least as important as that which, which produced it. I would say very often more important, certainly if you're a yogi. Because as you start to do that, that starts to lose its power. And then what is it replaced by? It's replaced by uh, a clear mind, silence, a still mind. And that mind enables you 
to have the possibility of a response, not a reaction. Reactions are mechanical. Out of that stillness, and stillness, of course, is the direction the practice goes, it gets more and more vast and silent. And this silence, the word silence is not the best word because people think it's a break from the real thing. It is a real thing, and it is highly charged with life. It's just the most subtle form of life you can... No one bothers talking about it because you can't, because by definition, there are no words in it. Okay. Let me act something out. When the mind becomes quieter, and then really still, and then the same situation, something from the world, touches it, a child, a husband, a wife, a boss, a tree, a bird chirping, something touches that stillness. This is mysterious to me. It touches the stillness and it stimulates a kind of intelligence that is not the rational, deductive, logical intelligence that uh, we all are familiar with. Uh, This silence is extraordinarily wise, intelligent, compassionate. Uh, I don't practice metta very much, formal metta. Whatever little progress I've made in being a more loving person, I feel has come from silence. Uh, I, and it doesn't necessarily happen during the time you, you rest in the silence. And of course, first you have to taste it. Then you have to learn how to soak in it like a hot tub and let it work on you. I would say the major healing happens in the silence. And then the next challenge for a practitioner is to learn how to take that silence into action. You don't leave it at IMS. But when something in life touches it, uh, you find... I have found after certain retreats where I've tasted a little bit of silence, uh, suddenly, wow, I'm, I'm more loving. How did that happen? I haven't been cultivating love. It's because there's a tremendous, boundless love in the silence. I don't know how. It's, that's the way it is. Okay. Now, I want to link this with the choiceless awareness because sometimes I get questions like, Choiceless awareness is nice, but it seems like, what does that have to do with daily life? It's so ethereal. You know, just sitting there, allowing everything to happen, watching it all come and go. Life is different. Life is the people and decisions and action. Exactly. But let me try to make the link. For me, choiceless awareness is a magnificent preparation for daily life. Because one of the main things you're learning is how to be with what turns up. Now, is that any different from daily life? You may have the same routine, get up at the same time, go to work, have your breakfast, go to work, uh, hi neighbor, everything is the same. But is it? Or is inner life is constantly changing and life throws up not only external surprises, but internal surprises. What we're learning is how to land on our feet no matter what turns up. Because we have no program, we have no agenda, we're just sitting there. Whatever is there, we have to learn. So it's not just being concentrated. We also have to be supple, pliable, flexible. The samadhi, the the strength that comes out of the singular attention to the breathing, to the walking, to doing the yoga job, etc., etc. That has to learn how to move freely and in a uh, to be spry as life situation changes. I'm going a little bit over. I hope you forgive me. Uh, won't be too much more. I want to get to the, the beauty of the silence a little bit. You know, in some of the Mahayana 
artwork, you'll see a bodhisattva. Uh, this is someone who's in that, in the, uh, it's sometimes what it conveys is a person who's dedicated to their own enlightenment in order to save all beings. I personally have not found much difference between my Theravadan teachers, Mahayana, all the yanas, all these vehicles. They'll all be towed at the end, in the end, <laughs> at the owner's expense. Okay. Um, there's one kind where you see the bodhisattva has, it's like the bodhisattva with a thousand arms and hands, and there'll be an eye in each hand. Uh, that, that's a kind of a, a visual, graphic way attempting to characterize uh, the willingness to help or is to have compassion. Uh, a thousand hands to help wherever help is needed. Sometimes the bodhisattva is someone who just listens, avalokiteshvara, listens to the cry for help in the world, for suffering, for starting with yourself. Okay. But here's the point I'm trying to make. One meaning of it is Modern technology, okay. One meaning of it is, is that when the mind is empty, it has no program of what it's supposed to do. Everything is skillful means, because it's ready. And what is needed may not be what you got out of a book, but what seems to really be called for. And it's wisdom that grows out of the stillness, out of a clear mind. When the mind becomes more clear, I am going to go a little longer. Michael, is that okay? Yeah, what can I do? <laughs> it's a fait accompli. All right. We'll, work, we'll box each other later. So. Um, what it's trying to say is the bodhisattva's mind uh, doesn't have an agenda. It's not like I'm trying to be a compassionate person. That's how we talk. It's the nature when the mind is clear is to see what needs to be done. And it just flows, the skillful means. Let me give you a tiny example um, with my own mother. It'll show you that I have a long ways to go before I'm uh, someone with a thousand hands, arms. Um, my mother was dying. And uh, the whole family was gathered around her and we were told that it wouldn't be long, but it went on for weeks and even uh, six weeks. Uh, I checked into a hotel near the hospital, and she just was ferocious in wanting to hold on to life. And there was one point, which turned out to be a few days before the end, where her breathing was so belabored that it was agonizing to be in the room with her because we felt how hard she was working to stay alive. Most of her was, she was mostly paralyzed. She had one arm that could work, uh, the right arm and hand. And I was holding that hand at her bedside. We were all gathered around. And the effort to breathe was just staggering. And so I gave her a good Dharma talk, Dharma 1.1. Mom, your body has served you well. She was 90. You've lived a long life. Uh, Don't work so hard. It's not necessary. Just relax. Every time I told her about letting go, that she didn't have to struggle to stay alive, her hand would tighten, you know, like, uh, where this little lady got this steel grip from, I don't know, the same place that she was struggling to to breathe from. And I just felt she was going to crush my hand. And at a certain point, duh, I got it. Uh, I realized... uh, 
that I wasn't coming from a clear place. I was anxious about her breathing, and everyone in the room was. And the reason I wanted her to let go, at least to some degree, was so that we wouldn't have to feel so bad being around such incredible struggle to stay alive. And in a way, it wasn't about her. Somewhat, of course. As soon as I saw that, that fell away. And what just naturally came was appropriate. Remember, my mother's not a big Vipassana meditator at all, you know, to put it mildly. She can't even say the word, you know, <laughs> without cursing me out, you know. <laughs> okay. And what became obvious was more metta. Just saying, Mom, you've been a loving person all your life. Many people appreciate all the love that you've given. And here we are. Your family's here. We love you. You've loved us. And her hand just relaxed. She, as best she could, she smiled. That was skill and means. That, now, in a textbook, it might say, don't struggle with death. You know, it's inevitable. It's natural. It's the nature of the body. Let it go. Straight Buddha, Buddha 1.1. But it was, it was correct, but it was wrong. And what I would like to say is when the mind gets clear, you have fewer choices to make. Americans hate this, to hear this. We want endless choices to make. We want 17,000 different kinds of raspberry, cherry, apple. Somehow just good old apple juice, which in the old days people used to drink. Nope, rasp, ap, pine, you know. uh, (laughs) uh, 17 flavors, 43 kinds of green, green things in it. 74 Chinese herbs, 135 uh, different grains. You know, like, what happened to just some apple juice? It doesn't sell. No one wants it anymore. Okay. Okay. And so we're making up lists on the one hand, if I get this, but I can't. Okay. When the mind gets clear, you don't need all that muck. That is simple. You see what needs to be done much more readily. You also see what you don't want to do, most of it. You go into a restaurant, uh-oh, we're out of here. You can tell in a few seconds. So um, the, the work that we put in on the cushion is at least potentially tremendously related to what we do in daily life. And if you practice in daily life, when you come back to the cushion, you'll find that it enriches your, your contemplative life on the cushion. So it's essentially life. And choiceless awareness is not esoteric at all. It's just training and being with what's there. If you're with what's there, then the action that comes from that is much more likely to be appropriate and useful than if the action comes from what's not there, what you want to be there, what used to be there. Okay. Can we have a moment's silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.